I've entitled the message, Let's Prove God is Wrong. Let's prove God is wrong. Can we do it? Good luck, right? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you were actually, you knew a decision that was being made was wrong, but you didn't have enough information to prove that it was? You ever found yourself there? I've been there. You know it's wrong, but you don't really know what's right, and you really got to dive in and dig to find out what's right so that you can then prove it. Well, today we're going to look at um, kind of a courtroom setting where human nature is actually putting God on trial. That's the focus today. Human nature. What we inherited from Adam is actually going to try to prove God wrong. I went to school at Virginia Tech. I uh, went to community college a couple of years and then uh, transferred down my first year. So I ended up my first year with a 1.99 grade point average. If any of you guys know about academia, you know that 2.0 is the only one that keeps you in school. So here I am, 1.99. What am I going to do? I was expecting a certain grade from a class that I was in, and that professor did not give me that grade in order to put me on the 2.0 mark. I was at a 1.99. What am I going to do? I'm going to roll over, or I'm going to rise up, at least talk to the professor. Well, I decided to rise up. I went and told him my dilemma. He opened up his grade book. He looked at all the points, and he said, well, you are at the top end of the C. He said, I could in good conscience give you a C plus and therefore keep you in school. I go, yes, <laughs> I made it in 2.0 and I got to stay. I didn't graduate with 2.0. I decided to study the last two years and it was a little bit higher when I left. But when we get into situations, sometimes we challenge those situations. We challenge the status quo or we challenge, obviously in this case, I was appealing that the teacher, and in good conscience, he agreed that he would give me a C plus so that I could stay in school. Well, human nature decides to put God on trial. Now, up until this point, we saw from last week that uh, we tried several things. We tried to say, God, just because I didn't know. In other words, I'm, I, I, just, I just didn't know what you wanted. Living in ignorance, so to speak. And God says, that doesn't count. I created nature and I created your conscience and therefore that's not an excuse. In fact, someone told me after the service last week that they've been in, in actual literal courts where the judge has told the people, just because you didn't know the law doesn't mean I'm going to let you off or you're not guilty. He says, I've seen that several times. And so even judges today in courts, they say, I don't, I don't care you didn't know. You're still guilty. And so God tells us the same. Human nature. You, you claim innocence. Well, you're not. And then we, we say, well, but God, I own a Bible and I memorized a couple of verses. And I'm a member of a church. Doesn't that make me righteous? God says, no. That's not what works for me. And then we go on and we say, well, wait a minute. I've been water baptized, I take communion, I even tithe. Aren't I righteous before you? God says, no. That's not what does it either. And yet many times that we, we grow up and how we're taught and how it's insinuated that we think because we do those things or, or have a Bible or, or, or even, you know, we just didn't know that God says, I'm going to let you off the hook, I'm going to excuse you. Well, today 
as we walk into chapter 3 of Romans, we have the Jewish people reasoning out that just because they were Jewish, that they had this kind of grandfather clause in to having favor with God. And God suddenly jolts that thinking and says, no, you don't. They're like, what? God says, yeah, that's right. Well, let's, let's kind of read and, and see, uh, see what they say. In chapter 3, verse 1, they start out, well, what advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? The question that they are asking. God, if you chose us to be your you know, favorite people, you actually started way back with Abraham and then you brought your son into this Jewish race, this ethnic people of Jews, then we, we must, because we were chosen, we must have your favor. We must be exempt from sin. We must be grandfathered in in this righteousness. And God says, no, you're not. It's like you know, being born in a, a family of, uh, say, Christian parents. Would you, and so, uh, would you rather be born into a family with Christian parents and upbringing and understanding of the Bible? Or would you rather be born into a family of a different faith? Or maybe of a no-faith family? What, what would be the advantage? And so that's exactly how they answered. They said in, in verse 2, they said, you know, what good is it? What, what advantage of it? And God comes back in, in verse 2 and he says, oh my goodness. He said, you have a huge advantage because you're closer to the truth being born in a Jewish family or a Christian family because you have the Word of God, you have the Bible available to you. You are so much closer to the truth than you would if you were born of a family of another faith or even no faith. Rejoice that you were born into a Christian family, even though you may not be born again. You're so close to the truth. And so that's how God comes back and answers them in this this process. And so what happens is that when human nature puts God on trial, they really come at God from two different aspects. Number one is they try to find fault with his process. Another, they're, they're going to try to pick apart God's thinking, his process. And when that doesn't work, then they're going to come right into his personhood. They're going to tear, try to tear God down as a person. And that's how we do it, don't we? If we don't like something, what do we do? We, we pick apart the process and we find something faulty with the process and we say, because your process is faulty, therefore your end result must be wrong. And if we can't find anything wrong with the process, then we attack the person. God's just out to get me. He doesn't like me. He, there's something wrong with him. He's inconsistent. We attack the person. And we do that in the natural, and we also do that in the spiritual. And so we have this, this coming at us today of, of human nature trying to put God on trial to prove that he's wrong. And so we've already jumped into to, um, verses 1 and 2, and so we get to, to 3 and 4 of this picking apart the process. God's process is questioned. In, um, in verse 3, it says, But what if... Some were unfaithful. Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Well, not at all. Let God be true and let every human be a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. So human nature is trying to pick apart God's process of how we become righteous. 
And they, again, are, are, are attempting every way to prove God wrong. And one of the ways they come up with is, first of all, they said, hey, if we're not chosen, or since we're chosen, we must be righteous. God says no. Second, they come back and they say, well, what if your people are unfaithful? Does that make you unfaithful? God says, absolutely not. It would be like a parents, and you would understand this, if one of your children that you brought up in the Lord, or your children you bring up in the Lord, you teach them about the Bible, and you teach them about Jesus, and then you get to the place where they just decide to go their own way and do their own thing. Now, does that make the parent wrong? Did, was, a, was a parent in error? Absolutely not. Just because the child chose to do its own thing. But again, human nature is trying to pick apart God's process and say just because the kids went wrong, then the parent must be wrong. God says, absolutely not. And he comes back and, and he uses this verse out of, out of Psalm 51.4. And kind of the way he brings it out here, he says, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. So the, the nature of God is to pick apart this process and because the, the people are unfaithful, God must be as well. And he cites this verse out of Psalm 51. It's really, it's really a psalm that David, King David, he prayed this prayer after he had committed two sins. <clears throat> what were those two sins? One was adultery and the other was murder. And many of you probably know this story, but um, I'm just going to share it with you and then come back and, and read from Psalm 51. But... David is a married man. He could have any woman he wanted to because he was king, and yet he looked out over his balcony, and he saw this beautiful woman, and she was somebody else's wife, or uh, she was, yes, someone else's wife, and uh, her husband was off to war fighting for the king. Again, they have an adulterous affair, and during that time, she gets pregnant, and as a result of that, David said, okay, I'm embarrassed because I'm a married man, and now I got this woman pregnant. What am I going to do? He calls the husband off the battlefield to come home that he would have relations with his wife and therefore he could pawn it off on the timing of that and to keep it in the timing. He said, shh, I'll get out of this one. He called the husband out of the field. He would not go in and lay with his wife because his buddies are out fighting. He said, that's not fair. So he didn't happen. That didn't happen, and David sent him back out to the battlefield and told his captain, put him out on the front lines and you withdraw and then let the enemy come in and kill him. Therefore, it looks like a legitimate thing. That's exactly what happened. David said, I'm off the hook now and because uh, and this lady is uh, without her husband and therefore I can legitimately marry her and we can carry on life. But that's not how God saw it. There's... Um, Several things, and basically uh, probably just two in the Jewish law at that time, that could not have been forgiven through a sacrifice. In other words, bringing an animal, sacrificing, say, God, forgive me. There's two things that God says a sacrifice won't suffice. And when these two sins are committed, you have to kill the person. One of those was murder, and the other of those was adultery. Now David's in deep trouble because he not just committed one he committed two it's a double life sentence for him 
And yet he understood the nature of God. He understood that if he would truly repent, that God would forgive him. However, scholars say that he strung it out for a year. It was one full year before David came to him and set up circumstances where he finally admitted, I'm caught, I did it wrong, and he repented before God in Psalm 51, which is used in this passage, is what David prayed. Let me read it, read it to you. David, he prays this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. See, David's human nature would have said, I want out of this, I want to cover it up, I'm embarrassed by it. And God said, no, we're going to deal with it. And we're going to deal with it out of the open. And because, David, you asked for mercy from the heart, I'm not going to take your life, but instead he took the child's life. Because the law said someone had to die. And David knew that that young baby that was born should have been his life. And his life was spared, and the baby's life was taken. What a humbling moment for David. But David didn't, in his human nature, try to skirt around it. He says plainly in this psalm, God, I did it, and I did it before you, and please forgive me. David had a heart after God, and God excused him and forgave him. So then, human nature in this court is trying to pull apart the process of how God makes us righteous, and it's failing. So now it's going after the personhood of God. It's going after the character of God, our human nature. We continue on in verse 5, and it reads, But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that, if that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness, so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Hey, why not, as some slanderously claim we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. What a warped way of thinking. God, we know that you're a God of mercy. We know that you show love. We know that you forgive. So let's just pull out the stops and sin. Let's just do whatever we want to as long as we want to because we know that mercy is always greater than the sin we commit. Therefore, if we commit more sin, we're going to experience more mercy. Let's just sin. Wow. That's what human nature reasons. Can you imagine? Apart from God, that's how we reason. I'm going to do this anyhow because I know God will forgive me. That's how our human nature reasons. And again, God is, they're, they're attacking God's personhood in this matter, saying 
Let's take advantage of God. Let's stretch God's mercy. And finally, uh, God has enough, but he knows who he is, and he knows that he does show mercy on those that ask it. In James 2, 12 through 13, James writes, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will never be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And then in Romans 2.4, which we read a couple of weeks ago, it's his kindness that leads to repentance. Not his anger, not his judgment, it's his kindness. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.7, Blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God's character, his nature is mercy over judgment. And yet, those that don't want mercy and don't show mercy, his judgment is rendered upon them. That's who God is. He's very consistent in that. Number two, God's indictment is rendered against the human race. God's indictment is rendered against the human race. We see that in verse 9. He reads, What shall we conclude? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. That's one of the things that we have in common with all the human race. We may have different cultures, we may think differently, but everybody that's ever been born in the world has one thing in common, we have all sinned. We have all not kept the standard of righteousness before God. It's impossible in our human nature. That's what we inherited from Adam. And yet, we in our thinking, we in our understanding, try to reason out. We try to find fault with the process. We try to, again, attack God's person to say he's not fair, he's not just. He's siding with them and not me. We try to make God out to be someone other than who he is. That's our human nature that is bringing God to trial to try to prove that he's wrong and yet God comes back with this indictment and he says that everybody is under the power of sin Paul even includes himself in this he says we that means he's included Paul was under the power of sin in his life at one time until he met Jesus and Jesus set him free what an incredible uh, uh, reality that we have to face in what our human nature is apart from God being involved. You say, wait a minute, are you telling me that a church member that is not born again is at the same level with God as an atheist who hates God? And God would say yes. But we would reason, oh they're a church member but they're not born again. They have to be closer to God. They have to be righteous. That's what our, our mind reasons, and God says, no. A church member, without being born again, without Jesus living in our heart, is at the same level before God as an atheist that hates God. And yet in our minds, we don't like to think that way, and yet that's how God thinks. We're all at the same place. At this point... God would have uh, brought down a gavel. But if you know anything about law, you realize that uh, every indictment needs evidence. 
In fact, you know, if you're, in, you're watching or understanding anything that's going on in America right now, we have a, a, a president, a former president, that, that is having a lot of indictments being put on his life. But yet, there has yet to be produced the evidence to support that indictment. So the indictments are being brought. The question is, will there be evidence to support that? And so God is bringing an indictment here against the, the, our human nature. And so the question is, what evidence will he bring to support it? That's the question. But he does. God understands this, uh, this, this, this legal matter. And so in verses 10 through 18, we have the evidence to support the indictment that everybody in the world is under the power of sin. And here we go. Let's look at these, these, um, these verses here together. Now, if you notice in your Bible, if you have it open or probably on your device as well, that these next eight verses are actually written in a different form than the other verses are. And uh, my understanding that this is called a katina. What is a katina? It's, it's where if you want to prove a point, you actually go and, and pull from other sources of the Bible that support the argument and the evidence of what you want to, want to prove, and you bring it all together from other areas and other sources to bring the evidence to make your point. In the same way we would do it if we were, say, uh, uh, doing a topical study. And so we have a certain topic, maybe the mercy of God. And so we would pull something on the mercy of God from Revelation and maybe something from Matthew and something from uh, Isaiah and maybe Genesis about the mercy of God. And all of those verses from those areas that are authoritative in nature would be pulled together so that we could see a fuller picture of the mercy of God. So that's what's happening here. God has this indictment that everybody in the world is under the power of sin, and so he pulls together the evidence, and if you look at your, you have to look in the sideline, you'll see a whole bunch coming out of Psalms, you'll see one coming out of Ecclesiastes, you'll see another one coming out of Isaiah, that are all pulled together for the evidence to prove this indictment against human nature. So here's the first evidence that God brings. He says, we're all born flawed in 10 through 12. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned, and they together have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Wow. That's a blow to human nature, because we thought there was some goodness in us that God would, you know, like, and he would overlook, and he would grandfather us in, and God says no. The second thing that uh, the evidence that is brought against human nature is our mouths speak it. Look at verse 13 and 14. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Wow. You say, well, that's harsh, God. Are people actually like that? Because probably in this room we would think, well, that's far from how I talk and how I think. But if you've ever been in a situation where people are immoral, far from God, could care less about Him and have no fear of the Lord, have you listened to how they talk about themselves and other people? It's probably not far from these verses here. And so we have to realize that God is piling up the evidence against human nature of how we normally think in this indictment. The third thing he says is this, 
is that our actions, our actions stir contention. 15 through 17, let's take a look. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The ways of peace they do not know. Wow. Their feet are swift to, to basically commit violence and contention. Have you ever noticed that the world teaches us that the way we deal with problems is to get contentious? You know, start an argument, get contentious, and that way you kind of solve it that way or hope to solve it that way. It teaches us to get contentious to solve things. <laughs> I was uh, reflecting upon the fact that sometimes I watch a series on one of the platforms and sometimes I'll get to thinking about the fact, all the problems, you know, you watch a series to see how they're going to solve the problems. That's basically what you do. You're in, and they've got all kinds of issues and things that come up along the way, surprises, and you're just watching how they solve their problems. And I've noted different times, you know, if all these people knew Jesus, this episode would be really short. <laughs> you know, it could be solved in two sessions and not four seasons later, because if everybody knew Jesus, they'd just forgive and go on and bless one another and be done. <laughs> but that's not how the world teaches us to operate. It says, get contentious. Get, get worked up. Get violent if you need to. That's what human nature tells us needs to be done, but God has another way. And then finally, in verse 18, it reminds us that our hearts get hardened. There's no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God before their eyes. And we, ladies and gentlemen, are fastly heading towards a culture of no fear of the Lord at all personally as well as publicly. That is at an alarming pace. And yet we're beginning to wake up as a church and a people to say, no, that's not the direction we want to go. We want to go a different direction than what the culture is trying to pull us into and say it's okay and that we, uh, that we need to just let it go because that's the direction it's headed. I, uh, I read an article this week of a of a, a fellow that was observing that um, the people that he went to church with as a young person, they're all gone. They're all, they're all left. In fact, he noted, did the statistical research, that 12% of Americans have left church in the last three or four years. They have left church. And he began to ponder that as to why. And he's alarmed. He said, people that you know, I liked, and we were all in together. Suddenly, they're just, they're not there. He said, I feel alone. What's happened? They've left the gathering. Whether it's a large or small or intermediate, they just left. What happened? And, of course, we can reason what happened. I mean, we were invaded with a, you know, a, 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 a I call it a pandemic. We were, we're, were invaded with something. It isolated people. It interrupted our routines. It also caused us to awaken to the fact that, that those institutions that we thought we could trust, we can't trust anymore, myself included. It's alarming. And one of those institutions is the church because things came out with church leaders during this time that they were doing things that were not godly. And so we lumped the church in that as well along with all the other places that we thought we could trust and now... We can't. And so people were saying, I'm done. I'm leaving. I'm out of here. Well, I understand. Uh, you know, 
uh, live stream came along for made it convenient to stay home and I get that so my question is not why it's happening my question to me and us today is if that trend continues where is America going to be 20 years from now not where we're at today we all see it but where's it going to be 20 years from now if the 12 percent grows into 20 or 25 or 30 or 50 that have left the church who's going to rule human nature what does human nature look like apart from God I've just described it for you in the last 25 minutes is that what we want to be governed by I don't think so I don't think we would desire that very much in our lives and the lives of others well God brings the final verdict I mean he's brought the indictment he's got the supporting evidence and now the final verdict we see that in verse 18 now we know that whatever the law says it says to those who are under the law so that may every mouth be silenced and the whole world be held accountable to God boom he brings the verdict down may every mouth be silent human nature and may the whole world be held accountable to God and so human nature is pinned it's been defeated it needs an answer it needs a way out and God at this point clarifies one other thing before he throws us the lifeline and in verse 20 you see it read there therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law rather through the law we become conscious of our sin you see the law can't redeem anybody we like to think that because somebody is arrested they're redeemed absolutely not furthers from the truth we would like to think that if they're put into a program and their behavior changes a little bit that they're redeemed what about their heart what about their motives as soon as they get out of that controlled setting or that code program they go back into doing the very thing that they did before because their heart wasn't redeemed see the, as all the law can do is to tell us what's right and what's wrong and it can never at any point redeem us that's something greater that's something much deeper more personal than just a law that we follow in the same way in the church as we set up different guidelines and maybe rules that we follow none of those can redeem us or make us more righteous but it's somebody else coming and joining our lives that changes everything I wanted to stop at verse 20 and I couldn't <laughs> it's just like I can't do that I can't do that to myself and I can't do that to you we have to jump into verses 21 and 22 to throw a lifeline today and that is that after the guilty pronouncement number four a lifeline of hope enters and here's the lifeline of hope but now apart from the law of the righteous but now apart from the law the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify this righteousness given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference between Jew and Gentile there it is that's our lifeline of hope it's faith in Jesus it's faith in the one that came to take 
that nature that was given to us by Adam. That's just been described of how it's taken God to the task to try to prove him wrong. That's the nature that was put in us apart from God. And God says, I want to take care of that. I want to give you a new nature. I want to give you one that only I can put in you. When you put faith in my son Jesus that did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. You can't change yourself. You can't fix yourself. You can't fix others. But Jesus can. He can fix you. He can fix others. And he can change the circumstances for his glory. And when you trust and put faith in that, that's the righteousness of God that comes and lives inside of us. That nothing else, nothing else could ever give us. The other thing that I recognize about putting faith in Christ is that God doesn't just change a life. He changes a lifestyle. And sometimes we say, God will change your life. But yet our lifestyle remains the same or even mimics that of the world. No, when Jesus comes in, the true gospel that Paul is preaching here today is that he not just changes your life, but he changes your lifestyle. He changes your priorities. He changes your motivations. He changes why you live. He's changing what you do. Peter and John were fishing. And Jesus came to them and said, follow me. And those guys left their lifestyle to take on another one. Instead of fishing fish, they were fishing for people. I think of Zacchaeus. Before he met Jesus, he was a tax collector. In fact, he managed tax collectors. But once he met Jesus, it not only changed his life, it changed his business. It changed his lifestyle. He became more generous and he became honest. And he wasn't before. Because his life was changed and then God changed his lifestyle. And that's important for us to recognize that when Jesus comes in, he truly does change not only us as individuals, but he changes our outlook towards others. That is so massive in what he did. I grew up on a family farm, and my father was hoping I'd take over the family farm. In fact, I even went to college to get education for that direction, but God had other plans. And he began to move in my life between the junior and senior year of college. And he not only changed my life, he changed my lifestyle. And even though I went into business for a period of time, God said, now I want you to go into pastoring. And so I headed that direction. And then I went and joined a church, huge church, big staff. And then God says, I want you, he called Wanda and I together to change again and plant a church an hour away from where we lived and those we knew and loved. And now I look back and I wasn't always aware of how God was directing and moving. But as I look back, I say, God, you were in charge of all of it. I didn't understand it at the time. I didn't even like it at the time. I mean, I wanted, to, I wanted to, to, to stay in business, and I remember that, that it just came to the end. Actually, I was traveling every other week, and I married Wanda. I wanted to stay home with her. You blame me? I mean, I was like, I want to I hang out with her more, not travel all around the United States. And they just didn't have a place to put me. So they said in the organization, that was all God. 
I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave that company. But they said, we really don't have a place for you. So I left that company and I started building houses for a year with her brother. I had a contracting business. Where do you think the first house that we worked on was located? Right across the street from the company that I work for. I could see the people and hear the dinner bells. And God says, make a choice. You going to live in regret? Or are you going to follow me? Well, our human nature tries to put God, God on trial. And it's not going to work. Just clue you in right now. <laughs> you know, if you're trying to find fault with God's process... Try as you may. Get as detailed as you want to. It's just not going to work. He's going to win in the end. You want to attack God's personhood? You say he doesn't care. He's out to get you. He doesn't care. He doesn't, not, not, he's not kind. He's inconsistent. Again, when you get to the end of it, end of your fight, end of your challenge, it's simply not going to work. God's an amazing Heavenly Father. And he was handed this thing called human nature. That it didn't start out corrupt, but got corrupted along the way. But he said, I'm not going to leave it corrupted. I'm going to fix it. I'm going, no, I'm not going to fix it. I'm going to replace it. I'm not going to give human nature an upgrade. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to uh, take human nature and, and refurbish it. I'm going to give human nature a replacement. <laughs> wow. You just believe. Follow. Amazing. A replacement. So when we put our faith in Jesus, what actually happens is the spirit of the living God comes and lives inside of us. Lives inside of you and I. Cohabitates with us. I don't know if anybody shared that with you before, but that's a reality. God comes and cohabitates with us. He says, I'm available anytime you need. I'm here. I'm inside. I'm close. Call upon me and I will answer. Seek me and you will find me. Wow. So human nature begins this journey then with a new nature within us. We're still human. We still make mistakes. But that doesn't matter to God because He sees the righteousness of Jesus, His perfect life in place of yours. It's like you're under His umbrella of righteousness. And He can't even see the imperfections and sins and things that you're slipped up on. He can't even see that because you put your faith in Jesus. Our, it's hard for our mind to comprehend it. And yet at the same time, it is absolutely truth and reality that I've experienced in my life and many of you have. Today, maybe you've never heard that explanation of realizing that our human nature, apart from God, is corrupt. That it puts God on trial. And today, maybe you have a fuller understanding to know, wow, 
I could actually be forgiven. I could actually be made righteous. And the answer is yes. It doesn't happen for what you learn. It doesn't happen for what you earn. You can't achieve it on your own. But you can receive it into your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today and allowing us to come face to face with who we are apart from